<laughs> Wait, am I recording? You are listening to Stuff About Things, an art history podcast. All right, let's Van go. Hello and welcome to Stuff About Things, an art history podcast. My name is Lindsay. I am currently uh, getting my PhD in art history, which sounds way fancier and glamorous than it is. I say that because uh, it gives me some semblance of credibility, you know, like I am one year out from getting my PhD. But let's face it, I am recording this episode in my childhood closet, which is where I am also writing my dissertation from at the moment, and there is a very flatulent Labrador named Gus who is providing the profumery for today. That's my life, non-stop glamour, all the time. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode. I really appreciate you choosing to spend an hour and maybe some change with my voice in your ear telling you stuff about cool things. That's what I'm here for. That's what I do. Today's episode is one that I have had in the works for a while, ever since I took a little trip to Chicago last February when people could, you know, travel and go to museums and talk to people in person, and my hands weren't trapped from the amount of hand sanitizer that I use. Ah, the good old days. While I was in Chicago, I, of course, went to the Art Institute of Chicago, which is the big art museum in the city, one of the best art museums in the country, perhaps the world. When I go to art museums, I tend to gravitate towards galleries that are not at all related to the things that my own studies focus on. I mean, I go to those galleries too, but I look forward the most to seeing works of art that I know very little about because, in my humble opinion, trips to museums are way more fun when you aren't anticipating every little thing that comes around the corner. You can learn new things. You can approach works of art with a fresh mind. You can be curious. And you let yourself be surprised. Speaking of, while I was wandering, meandering, if you will, around the Art Institute on that frigidly cold February day, I swear, I swear, my, uh, my feet almost fell off of my legs. When I was walking around the galleries, I encountered a work of art that stopped me in my tracks and I stood in front of it for a solid 15 minutes. Primarily because the work of art is amazing. There's so much to look at and process and delight in while also like kind of being horrified. But also because I was getting a huge kick out of hearing other visitors reacting to that particular work of art. It was hilarious, ranging from like, what, what the hell? To, ugh, oh my god to, why is that here? To one person who said, oh my goodness, that is just horrific. I mean, now that I think about it, they may have been talking about me. Ugh. Which is obviously a joke, because next to this painting, I look like a frickin' 10 out of 10. As I hope will become clear, because if I'm scoring anything less than a 100% 10 out of 10 dime piece status when I stand next to this painting, I am doing something terribly wrong. No, all of those people were reacting to the subject of today's episode, 
a painting unlike any other, whose existence was born from literature, commissioned for the big screen, and of course now exists forever in one of the best art collections in the entire world. We will get into all of it in this episode. Without further ado, this is the part where I tell you stuff about a book, a movie, and a painting. Oscar Wilde, Ivan Albright, and the many pictures of Dorian Gray. Uh, before starting the episode, this is Lindsay coming to you two and a half years in the future. Yes, my voice that you just heard was two and a half years ago. Uh, to say that at some point in this episode, I refer to Oscar Wilde as being British. I recently had a listener reach out to be like, hey, Lindsay, nah, he's not British, he's Irish, which of course he is. So if you hear me refer to Oscar Wilde as being British, he is Irish. Many thanks to Fiona for pointing out that little foible. Back to you, past Lindsay. I know that you'll laugh at me, he replied, but I really can't exhibit it. I, I've put too much of myself into it. Lord Henry stretched himself out on the divan and laughed. <laughs> yes, I knew that you would, but it is quite true all the same. Too much of yourself in it? Upon my word, Basil, I didn't know you were so vain, and I really can't see any resemblance between you, with your rugged, strong face and your coal black hair, and this young Adonis, who looks as if he were made out of ivory and rose leaves. Why, my dear Basil, he is a narcissus. And, well, you, of course, you have an intellectual expression and uh, all that. But beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect is in itself a mode of exaggeration and destroys the harmony of any face. The moment one sits down to think, one becomes all nose or all forehead or something horrid. Look at the successful men of any of the learned professions. How perfectly hideous they are. Except, of course, in, uh, in the church. And then in the church, they don't really think. A bishop keeps on saying at the age of 80 what he was told to say when he was a boy of 18. And as a natural consequence, he always looks absolutely delightful. Your mysterious young friend, whose name you have never told me, but whose picture really fascinates me, never thinks. I feel quite sure about that. He is some brainless, beautiful creature who should be always here in winter when we have no flowers to look at, and always here in summer when we want something to chill our intelligence. Don't flatter yourself, Basil. You are not in the least like him. Oh, you don't understand me, Harry, answered the artist. Of course I am not like him. I know that perfectly well. Indeed, I should be sorry to look like him. Oh, you shrug your shoulders? I am telling you the truth. There is a, a fatality about all physical and intellectual distinction. The sort of fatality that seems to dog through history the faltering steps of kings. It is better not to be different from one's fellows. The ugly and the stupid have the best of it in this world. They can sit at their ease and gape at the play. If they know nothing of victory, they are at least spared the knowledge of defeat. They live as we all should live, undisturbed, indifferent, and without disquiet. They neither bring ruin upon themselves nor ever receive it from alien hands. 
Your rank and wealth, Harry, my brains such as they are, my arts, whatever it may be worth, Dorian Gray's good looks. We shall all suffer for what the gods have given us suffer terribly. Dorian Gray? Is that his name? asked Lord Henry, walking across the studio towards Basil Halward. Yes, that is his name. That was an excerpt from the opening pages of Oscar Wilde's only, and uh, therefore, most famous novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The novel tells the story of a beautiful young man named Dorian Gray. As you heard, the novel begins with a man named Lord Henry discussing the novel's titular picture, or portrait, of Dorian Gray with the portrait's artist, Basil Halward. In one of his sittings for the portrait, Dorian and Lord Henry meet, and Dorian learns that Lord Henry is into some freaky stuff, especially, you know, by late 19th century English standards. You see, Lord Henry is a libertine. No, that is not a political party, as I thought until I was about 12. Uh, It's much more fun than a political party, though, to be sure. Lord Henry is a hedonist. He's a very sexual, sensual man. And over the course of the novel, Lord Henry introduces and initiates Dorian Gray into his world. As a result, Dorian becomes obsessed with beauty and the pleasures of the flesh, shall we say. And he also becomes something else. Oh yeah, a freaking terrible person. In one of the more shocking moments of the book, Dorian is at least partially responsible for driving the woman that he may or may not love to commit suicide because he tells her she's old and gross and has no talent. His girlfriends, her name is uh, Sybil Vane, her death causes Dorian to go off of the deep end. And in this case, the deep end involves uh, murder, the dismemberment and chemical reduction of a corpse, blackmail that results in another, like, murder-suicide, some light stalking, some heavy stalking, said stalker getting killed in a bush, and lots and lots of opium. Over the course of the book's events, which span something like 18 years, Dorian Gray does not age. He is still as perfect as he was at the beginning of the novel. Instead, his portrait, the one painted by Basil Howard, who at some point Dorian murders, his portrait not only ages, but becomes utterly disfigured and wretched, having taken on all of the years and sins of the person it represents. When he realizes this, Dorian locks the portrait away. After he has an alleged change of heart and thinks, oh, you know what, 20 years of bad behavior and like two or three murders later, I'm, I'm gonna be good. I am going to not be a total jerk to people because, you know, let's not make things worse. After doing that for a while, Dorian goes back to check the portrait, assuming that it will have gotten less ugly. That is, that the magic of the portrait, for lack of a better word, works both ways. It gets ugly, but it could also potentially get reverse ugly. Mm, No. Turns out, Dorian... Uh, you were trying to be good to make yourself feel better, not because you actually wanted to be good. And the portrait knows. It knows. 
Dorian realizes this when he goes to see the portrait, and it depicts the most hideous creature imaginable. At this realization, Dorian goes a little crazy and thinks, well, if I destroy the portrait, it'll be a clean slate. So he picks up the same knife he used to murder the portrait's painter, Basil, and he starts stabbing the canvas. In another area of the house, the housing staff hears a blood-curdling scream coming from the attic, and they call the 19th British version of 911. The popo come, they go up into the attic, and they're like, oh my god, because there's this old, gross, decrepit man stabbed to death on the floor who just happens to be wearing Dorian Gray's rings. Turns out, in stabbing the portrait, Dorian transformed into his true self, and also, mm, stabbed himself to death. In the background, the portrait stands in all of its original glory. A last will and testament to the memory of who Dorian once was before the pleasures of life damned him to hell. That's the gist of the story. The moral of which is basically, don't be a jerk, because your soul is at stake. Oscar Wilde wrote this novel, I think it's technically a novella, a short novel, in the late 1880s, when the editor of a journal asked him and several other authors to write short novels for that magazine. When Wilde finally delivered his novella to said editor, uh, it caused a bit of a stir. The editor was concerned that the novel contained PG-13 material that would shock all of the innocent young women who read this magazine. Remember, it's late 19th century England that we're talking about. This novel was basically the Fifty Shades of Grey of its time. The Fifty Shades of Dorian Gray, if you will. Of course, today the picture of Dorian Gray is a literary classic, which virtually no one in the 19th century would have anticipated, because the book bombed. By Rotten Tomato standards, it was certified rotten. In particular, the book was vilified for its veiled, and let's be real, not so veiled, references to homosexuality. Because at this time, homosexuality was illegal in England. You could literally be put in jail for being gay, which unfortunately is still the case in some countries today. And oh boy, did this novel cause a ruckus. People lost their freaking bananas over this book. And not in a good way. In a very, very, very bad way. They went bad bananas, which is the worst kind of bananas. Wilde and his editor quickly realized that they made a huge miscalculation, and they started to scramble. Send help, send Jesus, send someone. The reaction by the public was so strong that people wanted Oscar Wilde to be thrown in jail for breaking the law, because they interpreted this book as being amoral filth. The publisher and Wilde got so nervous about this that Wilde went through the book and scrubbed out, or massaged, if we're feeling sexy, some of the more explicit references to homosexuality in the book. Mind you, I mean explicit not in the sexual sense, but in a, you know, can't easily be interpreted any other way kind of sense. 
For example, there were several passages in which the artist, Basil Halward, references how important Dorian Gray is to his life and how beautiful he thinks that Dorian is, in a way that is pretty sexually charged. In the edited version, Basil instead talks about how important Dorian is to Basil's work as an artist. Dorian becomes much more of a muse than an object of Basil's lust. After these edits, the book was more like 25 shades of Dorian Gray. Still very sexy for English standards, but not enough that Wilde would go to jail. This, however, turned out to just be a stopgap measure, because a few years later, Oscar Wilde himself was accused of being gay. Which he was, but if we could please put away our puritanical bull shizzle, that'd be great. Wilde ended up not only going to trial, but spending two years in prison because of this. And that series of events left him bankrupt as well as very sick. Once he was out of jail, he ended up fleeing to France, where he died a few years later of meningitis at the age of 46. Wilde was buried in a very simple grave outside the city of Paris before being moved nine or ten years later to the famous Parisian cemetery, the Cimetière du Père Lachaise, where he was buried in a tomb that was far more fitting of Wilde's growing stature as a martyr and a literary figure in the years following his death. His tomb was designed by modern sculptor Sir Jacob Epstein, and it has this modern-looking angel holding up a sarcophagus. Kind of has like an Egyptian spin to it, I think. Uh, but my favorite fact about the tomb is that at one point the angel very clearly had male genitalia. What a massive flex. And a big F.U. to the British who persecuted Wilde for being gay. Now, unfortunately for present-day viewers, the balls were vandalized at some point. The angel was emasculated. In fact, the grave is now enclosed in this plexiglass barrier that, when I had the privilege of seeing it in 2011, was absolutely covered in graffiti. Most of it was very positive, but it was graffiti nonetheless. I am assuming that they erected... <coughs> erected the uh, plexiglass after people were writing on the grave itself, which, not cool. Not cool, yo. That is how Oscar Wilde, now considered a British literary icon, came to be buried in a famous Parisian cemetery. And side note, fun travel tip, the Père Lachaise Cemetery is an absolutely awesome place to visit in Paris. You know, if you ever happen to, you know, be in Paris and want to do something cool, go visit that cemetery. It's beautiful, the tombs are stunning, and it houses the final resting places of some of the greatest artists, writers, musicians, and people in history. It's a very cool place. Oscar Wilde is now considered a literary icon, and the picture of Dorian Gray is his probably most famous work. It's also his only novel, given that Wilde's other writings generally took the form of poems and essays and short stories versus the picture of Dorian Gray, which weighs in at about 150 pages, depending on, you know, the edition that you get. So it's not a long novel, but it is a novel nonetheless. 
Even though the picture of Dorian Gray was absolutely trashed when it first came out in the late 1880s, the book slowly but surely gained steam as the years went on. As with any good piece of IP, intellectual property, the picture of Dorian Gray has inspired numerous movie adaptations over the years, the first of which was made in 1910. It was a Danish film, and I really didn't look into it, if we're being honest. There were also adaptations that came out in 1913, 1915, two in 1916, and another in 1917. Mind you, these aren't all English language, nor were any of them feature-length films, nor did any of them have sound. They were silent films, as one would expect of early 20th century filmmaking. And yet I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised, and I know that I shouldn't be. After 1918, there was a gap of several decades before anyone tried to adapt Wilde's novels for screen again. By the time the 1940s rolled around, cinema had advanced leaps and bounds from the silent films of yesteryear, and the world was ripe for the first-ever feature-length speaking-with-words movie adaptation of Oscar Wilde's classic novel. The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1945 movie version, has become something of a classic film in and of itself. When reading up on it, however, I was surprised to learn that many of the people involved in the project were relative newcomers on the Hollywood scene. Director Albert Lewin, for example, would only ever direct six or seven movies in his entire career. The Picture of Dorian Gray was number two but it wasn't exactly his second time at the rodeo, so to speak. Before his directorial debut, Lewin had worked fairly extensively in Hollywood, first as a reader for Samuel Goldwyn, then as a script assistant, before he eventually progressed into script writing himself. The next frontier? Directing. Despite being a relatively new director with just one film to his directorial name, Lewin's efforts to adapt the picture of Dorian Gray were backed by the studio set to produce it, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, also known as MGM. I haven't been able to find a ton of information on the pre-production development of the film. I'm namely interested in how Lewin decided that Oscar Wilde's novel was ripe for a full-length adaptation. There's not a whole lot out there about that. But, as Greg Oropek of the Classic Film Freak blog has pointed out, the picture of Dorian Gray was very much in keeping with the types of movies that MGM was making around this time. This includes an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of 1942. So there was a demonstrative interest in psychological, semi-supernatural takes on man's descent into madness. Enter the picture of Dorian Gray. Albert Lewin cast a series of relative unknowns, or at least newcomers, on the Hollywood scene in the movie's main roles. The titular Dorian Gray was played by Herd Hatfield, who only had one other movie credit to his name at the time. Hatfield's supporting cast included the one, the only, Angela Lansbury in one of her first movie roles, and Donna Reed and Lowell Gilmore. The only cast member who was established was George Sanders, who played Lord Henry, the Heden. He sports a 
absolutely fantastic pencil mustache and creepy goatee throughout the entire movie. It's great. As one might expect, the film does closely follow Wilde's novel. One of the main points of departure, if you will, is that the movie leans more explicitly into the supernatural aspects of Wilde's book. It does this primarily by introducing this weird Egyptian cat statue. And at one point, Dorian, like, talks to this statue and he professes his desire to remain beautiful forever to a cat statue. Which I suppose, uh, you know, I have been known to talk to a statue or two. But not, like, genuinely. Not like, hey, statue, can you help me with this? But anyway, despite being an inanimate object, the cat seems to have heard, and it pops up in a ton of scenes as if it's bearing witness to all of Dorian's sins. It's weird, I don't totally get it, but I also don't totally hate it. But remember the cat. The cat will come back in a hot minute. Meow! When the film finally dropped in 1945, it received mixed reviews, and ultimately lost money at the box office. Ooh. It does, however, have a 93% certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I personally think is absolutely bonkers. Uh, not to, like, discredit myself here or my relationship to the subject matter that I'm currently talking about, but historically speaking, I have hated this movie. I have been forced to watch it twice, once in a film class, once in an art class. And if you ever want to find a way to get me to hate a movie, you make me show up for it at like 7 p.m. on a Thursday to watch it with the rest of the class when I could have just rented it from the library. I did rewatch it for today's episode. It wasn't as bad when wine was involved, but still, a 93% certified fresh rating? I don't think so. Y'all smoking something. Probably opium. But contemporary critics, you know, critics in the 1940s, were more in keeping with my professional opinion of the film, which is that uh, yeah, it's not very good. Film blogs these days, yes, I've I read some film blogs for today's episode, they seem to agree with me, or they're mostly critical, particularly of the acting in the movie. Now, I don't remember the acting being particularly bad, it's just the kind of acting that you'd expect to see in a 1940s movie. But other people have been very critical of it, especially in their critique of Herd Hatfield, who plays Dorian. Now, he either gets praised or lambasted for his performance, depending on whether or not people think he's acting. He's one of those actors in the role where you have to ask yourself, is he really good at acting aloof and cold? Or is he not making any attempt to act at all and just aloof and cold? Or worse, is he making an effort and all that comes across is aloofness and coldness? Herd Hatfield would go on to claim that his portrayal of Dorian resulted in him being typecast or not cast at all in many future movies. People equated him with the character of Dorian Gray. The same cannot be said, should not be said, will never be said, of Miss Angela freaking Lansbury, who was nominated for and won a Golden Globe for her portrayal of Sybil Vane in this movie. She would, of course, go on to have a historically badass career. 
the two areas in which the movie does receive universal praise is for its cinematography and its set direction. It won Oscars in both of those categories. The most thrilling thing about the movie is its use of Technicolor. By 1945, Technicolor, or movies filmed in color as opposed to black and white, it was pretty well established. The Wizard of Oz, for example, was released in 1939, and the majority of that movie is in color. Making films in Technicolor, however, was a very labor-intensive and a very, very expensive process. The picture of Dorian Gray, with its relatively inexperienced director and, you know, primarily up-and-coming cast, did not garner the funds or the talent necessary to make the entire film in Technicolor. As a result, 99% of the movie is in black and white. There are a handful of shots, however, that are in Technicolor. All of those shots are when the portrait of Dorian Gray appears on camera. It is a very effective use of this new movie technology. It also imbues the portrait of Dorian Gray with an additional sense of magic, of the supernatural, of something being alive in its own right or having sort of like an aura or a soul in and of itself. Speaking of that titular picture of Dorian Gray, as you will remember from my brief overview of the novel, the portrait of Dorian Gray transforms over the course of the plot. It goes from being a realistic portrait of the beautiful Dorian to a horrid depiction that has taken on both the years and the sins of the person it depicts, leaving the quote-unquote real Dorian Gray untouched. Also, it makes sense because, like, are you going to cast the handsome young man and then just not have him on camera? No, we want Herd Hatfield, people. Or, in the 2009 version, Ben Barnes. Mmm. In the lead-up to filming the movie, director Albert Lewin sought out two artists to create the before and the after versions of the portrait of Dorian Gray. The first very stately portrait of Herd Hatfield as Dorian Gray was painted by the Portuguese painter Henrique Medina. Medina was an academic painter, which is to say that he tended to do things by the book. His portraits are very traditional, striving for a quasi-photographic representation of the sitter. The same cannot be said of the artist that Lewin hired to paint the later version of Dorian Gray's portrait. That artist was Ivan Albright. Ivan Le Lorraine Albright was born in and about Chicago, Illinois, in February of 1897. He and his twin brother Malvin were the sons of the landscape painter Adam Emery Albright. Both boys took after their father, to a certain extent, and pursued their studies in art at the Art Institute of Chicago, where they studied the works of old masters like Michelangelo, Raphael, Rembrandt, Velasquez, and El Greco. As time went on, Ivan changed his tune a little bit and eventually went on to study architecture at college. This particular endeavor was fairly short-lived, in part because Ivan was kind of like, I don't know about this, but also because a little thing called World War I. Ivan enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1918, and he ended up with a fairly peculiar assignment in France, 
where he was responsible for providing medical drawings. Now, obviously, he was a trained artist, so it was a fitting job for him, but one that, like all jobs during the war, came with some uncomfortable and unpalatable responsibilities. Namely, Ivan spent a good deal of his time making drawings of wounded and disfigured soldiers. From my reading, it seemed like Ivan had some independence in choosing which soldiers to draw, and he always chose the quote-unquote most interesting cases of wounded or disfigured soldiers, which is messed up. It's really messed up. While Ivan claimed that his experience in the army had no impact on his style of arts, he did say that the things that he learned and saw at the hospital, namely the technology being used like x-rays, was better than any art school he could have ever gone to. It especially challenged and changed, really, his ideas of what the human body was and how it could be made immaterial by something like an x-ray, which had the power to render skin and muscle into a veil for one's bones. While Ivan said that these experiences, drawing wounded and disfigured soldiers in France, had no bearing on the kind of art that he created, it's difficult to see how that's the case. Most sources on Ivan Albright, and there aren't that many, at least not that I could get my hands on, in uh, a closet in Green Bay mid-pandemic, but most of what does exist at least questions the extent to which those experiences did inform his later career, regardless of what the artist himself said. That's not to say that Albright was lying. It seems more like those experiences imprinted themselves on him in a way that ran deeper than even he might have expected. Now, I'm not one for being like, you said something, but I'm going to assume that you don't know what you're talking about. But the reason that academics and museum people are so convinced that Albright's World War I experiences had more of an effect on him than he claimed is due to the style with which he is associated, the style for which he's famous. Albright has been called the master of the macabre, of the morbid, of decaying flesh and rot. As Jackson Arne put it in a post on artsy.com, Albright painted, quote, flesh gone foul. His paintings, especially those of the human figure, are something else. I would describe them as Lisa Frank meets zombie meets Dr. Frankenstein. They show people as grotesque versions of themselves, as if all of the vices and sins that our conscience or our soul or whatever you want to call it are projected onto the physical form that the world sees. For example, one of Albright's more famous works is a portrait called Into the World There Came a Soul Called Ida. Albright painted this work in the late 1920s, so about 10 years after coming back from the war. The painting is a portrait, for lack of a better word, of a real-life woman named Ida Rogers, who actually posed for this portrait. When Albright painted her, Ida was only 20 years old. She was at the peak of her physical attractiveness. And yet the woman in the painting is depicted as an aging crone whose skin is garish and gray and dominated by cellulite and bulging veins. It's unsettling to say the least, even without knowing that the person depicted was just 20 years old at the time. 
knowing that she was 20, it becomes downright creepy. The style that Albright established with his portrait of Ida is the one that would remain with him with minor variations throughout the rest of his career. All of his works have a macabre or grotesque character about them. They are at once psychedelic and very weirdly dark. They're also highly detailed. Albright was famous for using hundreds of teeny tiny paintbrushes to create these works. And sometimes the paintbrushes were said to have just one hair on them that he could use to achieve the maximum amount of detail. In one source that I read, he stated that he could only paint about a half square inch a day. A day. A half square inch. That's how meticulously and slowly he worked. And hey, can I judge the man? No. That is about the pace with which I'm working on my dissertation. I mean, I mean, a slightly, a slight bit faster, but not that much faster. Albright did not consider himself as an artist working within any particular school of art. So he didn't want to be associated with the ists and isms that we so often attribute to art historical styles, like, you know, Impressionism, Modernism, Post-Impressionism, Cubism. He wanted nothing to do with any of that. In fact, he said the following of the whole art historical shebang, quote, to join a general movement in arts, whether of this period or that, is to join a buffalo stampede. I say let the artist be the hunter rather than the buffalo. End quote. I bet you didn't expect buffalo to come up over the course of this episode, but alas, Ivan and I surprised you. Where money, craft, and the ties that bind the two were concerned, Albright was something of an idealist slash pessimist which I realize is counterintuitive, but hear me out. Albright almost never took commissions, and he very, very rarely sold his works. In fact, he trained as an architect, but soon after quit the profession because he thought it would require him to become a, quote, salesperson. That he would have to sell his ideas to people who would then pay for the projects. And Albright hated the idea that his work would somehow be beholden to the input and criticisms of those paying for it. He once said, quote, as a painter, you don't need a client. You can be truer to yourself, end quote. In other words, if no one is paying you, then the work is entirely your own. Uh, like, that's all, that's all good in theory, but it also implies that artists who work for money are somehow practicing a less pure form of arts. And maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they are. We can debate that later. But as an artist, you have to make money. You have to be able to pay for your supplies, for your studio, for the food that you eat, for the food that your family eats. Albright was exceptionally lucky and privileged to have a family, and then a father-in-law, who essentially bankrolled his career. The bottom line is that he didn't need to sell his art because his family, and then his wife's family, were rich, which let him get up on that high horse and talk about how having someone paying for your art somehow makes you beholden to them. Whatever. Ivan Albright, I know you're long dead, rest in peace and all that, but I do want to kick your past self in the shin. As the result of these ideas about painting as an art form, 
uh, as well as how long it took him to create each painting, Albright very rarely sold his works. When he did put them up for auction, he did so at outrageous prices. We are talking 30, 40, 50, 60 times the average going rate. That's not because he thought anyone would actually pay that much. In fact, he priced them that high because he knew people wouldn't buy them. Because to him, these works of art were priceless, and he did not want to part with them, and he didn't need anyone's money because he already had his dad and his father-in-law's money. Why sell something you don't want to sell if you don't need money? So he just didn't. He was so adverse to parting with his works that at one point, uh, one of his works entitled That Which I Should Have Done But Did Not Do, also known as The Door, won top prize in a contest held by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. The condition of that top prize, however, was that the Met was allowed to buy the work for a prearranged amount of money. Albright refused to part with this work. He even accepted a lesser prize, knowing that it meant he could keep the painting. So just, just to recap here. The Metropolitan Museum of Art calls his art the best and wants to buy it. And he says no. That's Ivan Albright. I mean, it is a power move. I, I cannot deny that. It is a power move. Albright's commitment to Vanitas painting, or paintings that remind us of our own progressive decay, our own aging, the fleetingness of beauty, the ever-present specter of death, etc., made him an obvious candidate to paint the after-portrait of Dorian Gray for the 1945 movie. In fact, it's the very reason that the director, Albert Lewin, approached him to do so. And let me tell you, the deal was pretty sweet. Albright was commissioned to paint the picture of Dorian Gray for the 1945 movie, The Picture of Dorian Gray, around 1943. The film production company, MGM, agreed to pony up $75,000 for Albright's involvement in the project. If the online inflation calculator I chose is correct, which let's be real, it's probably not, that amounts to just under $1.2 million in today's money. So, like, pretty sweet deal. It's kind of crazy that Albright agreed to this project, because over the course of his entire career, he only ever took on two projects on commission, the portrait of Dorian Gray being one of them. Ultimately, the opportunity was just too much to pass up, and Albright obviously took the job, which involved him occupying a studio in California on the MGM lot for almost a year as he painted the titular portrait of the movie. Let's talk a little bit about that portrait, shall we? Albright's portrait of Dorian Gray for the movie is a smorgasbord of detail in the service of ugliness. The portrait is no longer remotely recognizable as Heard Hatfield playing Dorian Gray. The man depicted is an abomination, a monster, a living corpse in an active state of decay whose sinfulness has leached into his surroundings, causing everything around him to wither and decay and rot. The most striking aspect of the portrait is, you know, as with most portraits, the figure's face. 
which is marred by deep wrinkles and lumps, made all the more gruesome by cysts and boils that dominate his cheeks and chin. His mouth is a leer, his lips disfigured by sores that seem to compound one on top of the other. This physical decay has moved on to the rest of his body and clothes, which are stained and disintegrating, and his hands, which seem to be covered in blood. Whether his own or someone else's, it's hard to say, probably a bit of both. The image of Dorian Gray presented here is the stuff of goosebump novels and horror stories, of zombie films and haunted houses. It sort of reminds me of the characters in the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie that are cursed to work on Davy Jones's ship, the ones that have barnacles growing on them and crabs crawling out of who knows where and rotting clothing. That's the vibe that Albright's Dorian Gray gives. This is, without a doubt, a cursed man. Cursed by the repercussions of his own really crappy actions, yes, but cursed nonetheless. The filth and decay of the figure spreads to the rest of the room, and most of the things in the background can only be understood when compared directly to the sister, or should I say brother, portrait by Henrik Medina. The fancy wall clock becomes a melted blob, the red carpet a disheveled tapestry, the velvet dressing screen a rotting stalagmite. The only aspect of the original portrait that remains largely, though not entirely untouched, is the statue of the creepy Egyptian cat, whose bloodshot eyes are now more human than ever, and whose mouth is coated in red foam. Sculpture or not, this cat has seen some sh**. It is very hard to tell from digital screens, but the colors of this work and the detail put into it is just insane. The colors themselves are a mix of very warm shades of red and pink and orange mixed in with these nasty grays and blues and yellows. Together, it all comes together, but in a way that both clashes and complements each other. The whole thing is spectacular, but it's also really gross, which is precisely the point. This portrait is supposed to both repel you and pull you in with the details forcing you to look closer at something that you find repulsive. Now, obviously, Dorian Gray is not a real person. He's a fictional character. How do you paint a portrait of a fictional character? There are, in fact, several ways that you can go about doing that, as evidenced by how Henrik Medina the other portraitist hired by Albert Lewin, and Albright worked on their respective portraits of Dorian Gray in their studios on the MGM lot. Of course, Henrik Medina essentially painted a portrait of Herd Hatfield as Dorian Gray, of the actor playing the movie role. Albright, however, couldn't do that. He had to paint Dorian Gray in all of his horrid glory. In order to better assist him, the studio provided Albright with a dummy-like mannequin of the ugly version of Dorian Gray, which stood in his studio as his subject from which to paint. There are still pictures of this wax-like dummy, and let me tell you, it's kind of terrifying. Not kind of, it is definitely terrifying. It's not nearly as disfigured or as terrible as the portrait that Albright painted, but it's almost worse 
in a way, because the dummy is life-size and, you know, three-dimensional, which makes it far more realistic than the painting, and therefore even more gross. I'm fairly sure, though not totally sure, that this is the same dummy that was used in the final scenes of the movie, in which the still-beautiful Dorian Gray descends into desperate madness and slashes the painting, ultimately stabbing himself to death and turning into the version of himself seen in the painting. It's all very cyclic. When the police and the household staff go upstairs, they find this version of Dorian Gray on the floor beside the once again beautiful portrait of Dorian that was painted in real life by Henrik Medina. I will, of course, post stills of all of that on the website for your perusal. Albright also had a slightly different experience with painting this portrait than Medina did because Albright had to paint the portrait as the movie filmed, given that it becomes uglier and uglier over the course of the movie. That's an incredible idea to me, this, this fact that the painting evolved as the movie filmed. And it also must have dictated how this movie was filmed, because in the present day, as many people know, TV shows and movies are very rarely filmed in sequence. They're filmed based on, you know, the actors' schedules, what set they're on, etc., etc. This film, or at least the scenes with the portrait of Dorian Gray by Ivan Albright, must have been filmed in sequence because it would have been an additive process. With Albright stepping in when they finished filming each one of those scenes to add to the existing portrait, to turn that portrait into the next version, so to speak, of Dorian Gray until he arrived at that final version. Over the course of writing and recording this episode, it also struck me that both times that I watched this movie you know, prior to ever considering it for a podcast episode, it never even occurred to me that these paintings were anything other than film props. And of course, they're film props in you know the, the truest sense. They are props on a film set. But I never thought about the people behind their creation, the artists who are actually painting them. And that is ridiculous, not only because I study art history, but also because one of the times that I watched this movie was for a modern art history course on portraiture. And I'm a pretty good student. I mean, I do have my moments where I completely zone out or don't listen or don't watch the movie if I don't want to. But I feel like I would have remembered someone being like, Ivan Albright made this portrait for the movie. It makes me wonder how many people have been conscious of that fact over the course of the movie's, what, 80-year existence. It certainly was not the case in the direct aftermath of the movie's premiere in 1945, after which Ivan Albright experienced something akin to 15 minutes of Hollywood fame when he appeared in magazines from Vogue to Newsweek to Life. Everyone wanted to know about this artist, what kind of works he made, how he made them, why he made them, why they look the way that they do. They were just very, very interested in the person who created this monstrous masterpiece that they saw in Technicolor on the big screen. Unfortunately for him, Henrik Medina did not inspire the same amount of interest for his boring portrait of Dorian Gray that appears at the beginning and the end of the movie, which 
not really that surprising because his portrait is boring, especially next to Ivan Albright's. After filming wrapped, Albright retained ownership of his painting of Dorian Gray, while Henrik Medina's portrait entered the MGM archives. While Medina's portrait didn't quite get the response that Ivan Albright's did from the movie-going public, it itself became a bit of movie history and an object that has appreciated in value over time, particularly in the last two decades. In 1997, MGM unloaded some of the things in that archive, including the Medina portrait of Dorian Gray, which sold at auction for just over $17,000. In 2015, however, the portrait was sold again at auction for almost $150,000. That's what I call a good investment. And if that's how much Medina's portrait of Dorian Gray is worth, it's safe to assume that Albright's would be exponentially more expensive. But to be clear, it's not for sale. As someone who rarely sold his works and even more rarely worked on commission, Albright retained most of his works at the end of his life. These included a series of 24 small self-portraits that Albright created in the final years of his life, after receiving an invitation to do so from the Galleria dei Uffizi in Florence, a museum renowned for having one of the greatest art collections of all time, particularly of those old masters and Renaissance greats that Albright regarded more highly than any artist of his own time, except, you know, maybe himself. Albright didn't just paint these self-portraits. He also produced several lithographic portraits, a lithograph being a kind of print, as well as drawings, as he was both a printmaker and draftsman in addition to being a painter. These portraits are very much in Albright's usual style, with exaggerated wrinkles and pores, bloodshot eyes, and flesh that is at once rosy yet withered, sparing himself almost as little mercy as he did for Dorian Gray. Albright continued to work on this series of self-portraits even after suffering a stroke, which seems to have affected his face more than his hands, which continued to paint until just days before he died on November 18, 1983, at the age of 86. According to Albright's daughter, Alice, in the hours before his death, Albright asked for a mirror. When asked why he wanted a mirror, given his current state, He responded that he wanted to, and I quote, see what death looked like. And hey, I suppose that's one way to do it. Ivan Albright was survived by his wife, children, and their spouses, including his ex-daughter-in-law, Madeline Albright, future Secretary of State. In his will, Albright left the majority of his life's work still in his possession to the Art Institute of Chicago, which today at least according to the online catalog, owns about 137 works by the artist, including the famous picture of Dorian Gray, which continues to hang on the gallery walls, where visitors often react in horror and disgust to the vain and murderous Dorian's appearance. Many, if not most of these visitors, don't even stop to read the label, just assuming that this is a modern artist doing some weird stuff. Which... To be fair, he was. Other visitors are not just interested in the work, but drawn to it, their fascination luring them closer in spite of their revulsion. 
The painting draws them in, asking them to confront the things that most would feel better not seeing at all, lest they be forced to think about what they might look like if subjected to the brushes of Ivan Albright, that master of the macabre. As Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray has taught us, however, it does not do to lock the reality of our lives away in hidden rooms, convinced that out of sight means out of mind. We would do better to take after Ivan Albright, who unflinchingly looked humanity not only in the eyes but beneath the flesh, rendering the immaterial contours of the soul in the physical stuff of the body, and painted it with his brushes, until he himself was looking at death. That is all I have for you today on Oscar Wilde's Ivan Albright and the many pictures of Dorian Gray. That one got a little deep at the end, didn't it? Woo! I wrote today's episode primarily with the help of online sources because I couldn't find all that many scholarly sources, which is to say, you know, like books or published essays, on Ivan Albright's or the 1945 movie from the comfort of my uh, closet office. I was able, however, to find a few things online. These include Christopher Lyon's 1985 essay on aesthetic realism that appeared in the winter edition of Art Journal, Elizabeth Lee's 2015 essay in the American Art Journal, and Tony Canavan's 2019 essay for Books Ireland on the 1945 film adaptation. I also had access to a 1972 master's thesis by Stanley Arliss Huber that was an immense help. I typically try not to incorporate unpublished theses and dissertations because, I don't know, it seems like an iffy ethical practice. But this thesis is from 1972, so I think it's fair game. I also utilized web materials from the Art Institute of Chicago, several movie and art blogs, as well as a couple of archived newspaper articles. I will link these and other sources along with relevant images on the podcast's website, stuffaboutthingspodcast.com. As for Gus Corner this week, Gus is doing great. He's fantastic. He enjoyed Christmas very much. He got to see some of his favorite humans not as many as he's used to, but some nonetheless, and he was spoiled rotten with gifts and treats and general love and attention. He sleeps at the foot of my bed almost every night. It's so dang cute. And as always, he's a very good boy. As for moi, I have a lot of stuff coming up that will probably result in episodes being even less frequent than they already are. I, and I know that that's saying something, and I'm sorry. But I appreciate each and every one of you who listens to the podcast. I want to keep making episodes. I plan on continuing to make episodes. But I just can't with a good conscience tell you that another episode will be up in about a month because it might be more like two or three months. I'm, I'm sorry. In the meantime, I would love it if you left the podcast a review. I put a lot of work into these episodes. It takes many, many hours away from what I quote-unquote should be doing, even though it gives me a lot of joy to do these, and seeing the reviews just gives me all the more motivation to keep putting these out. It also gives me a boost of confidence and happiness whenever I see a new one posted. Thank you so much for continuing to support the podcast by both listening and reviewing. I really appreciate it, and I hope to have another episode up for you whenever I am next able. 
If you kind of want to know a little bit of what is going to be keeping me potentially away from the mic a little longer than usual, you should follow the podcast's Instagram. I don't post a ton on there anymore. Again, I'm sorry. I got so much stuff to do. But there is a little about me section that will tell you a little bit about me and what I'm doing in the world. The usual thanks go out to freemusicarchive.org and hooksounds.com for providing the royalty-free music that you hear at the top and the bottom of the episode. The first song is a version of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 4 by Kevin MacLeod, and the second song is called Success Dreams. I wish you a very happy holidays, and I hope beyond all hope that 2021 is, I don't know, better. Because 2020, man, it's had its moments, but it's also been a dumpster fire. I hope that you take the time to count your blessings, balance that out by putting, you know, some curses on a couple people. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And as always, I hope you take the time to look at something beautiful, weird, quirky, strange, macabre, I don't know. Just take the time to look at something cool today. As for me, I'll talk to you later. A la próxima. The Egyptian cat goes meow. Bye.